this passage that we're going to look at tonight as we continue our study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. We're going to look at the very end of chapter 1 and go into the beginning of chapter 2. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but the verse and chapter markings aren't in the original text. They're not inspired. So it's okay if you have a text that you're going to talk about that crosses over the end of one chapter into the next one, because really that idea um, kind of all holds together there. But as you look at this passage, I think it's a, a rare opportunity to see the heart of the Apostle Paul and, and really get a sense of what drives him and what makes him tick. And maybe you're one who has thought about motivation, particularly in this season. We're all having trouble with motivation, you know? And um, I think in the Christian church, so often motivation is done poorly. I would say that. It's, it's often either fear or, you know, trying to get people off of your back. And there was a movie that came out a number of years ago, not necessarily recommending this movie because there are some, some parts to it that I couldn't recommend, um, but it's the movie Office Space. Anybody seen Office Space? I know it's an older movie now, but um, it's, it's, there's some really great parts. Um, it's basically, you know, this kind of surreal, absurd comedy about kind of living in an office and working in an office. And um, there's one great scene. Peter is the main kind of character in the show. And um, he's this software engineer. Everybody at the company hates the company. Uh, the company is beginning to undergo uh, some tough times, and so there are about to be some layoffs. And so one of the things they do is they bring in some outside consultants to interview all of the employees to decide who gets to stay and who's going to be laid off. All right. So these two guys, uh, humorously enough, are both named Bob. So there's two Bobs, and the two Bobs come to interview Peter in his little cubicle, right? Um and I, I love this, you know, thing. They're talking to him about, about his week and what his normal work week is like and how he spends his time. And he says, basically, you know, as he's kind of thinking about it, he goes, you know, actually, Bob, I only do about 15 hours of actual work. And they're like, what? He goes, yeah, you know, um, Bob, it's not that I'm lazy. It's just that I don't care. <laughs> and Bob's like, what? Don't care? And Peter says, it's a problem of motivation. All right. Now, if I work my ass off, excuse me for that, and Inatech, that's the company, ships a few extra units, I don't see another dime. So where's the motivation? And here's another thing. I have eight different bosses right now. Bob, eight? Yeah, Bob, I have eight. So that means when I make a mistake, I have eight different people coming by to tell me about it. That's my only real motivation. It's not to be hassled. That and the fear of losing my job. But you know, Bob, that will only make someone work just hard enough to not get fired. I love that line. That will only make people work hard enough to not get fired. And I think that that's the way a lot of people, unfortunately, maybe think about God and think about the Christian life. They want to do enough kind of Christian stuff that they won't get fired, that they won't get hassled by God. And listen, I'm not here to beat you up if that's kind of where you're at, but um, it is worth thinking about 
why do you do what you do? Somebody told me when I first started working for RUF that that is really the most important question we want students to wrestle with. Why do you do what you do? And often we've not really stopped to think about that question very much. We come to this passage, we get um, to hear Paul's answer to that question. We get to see Paul open up his heart actually to people he's never even met. That's what's rather extraordinary about this passage. So let's look at it. Because say it's in the end of chapter 1. I'm actually going to start reading at verse 23, even though I know I've talked about that verse already. But you'll see why um, it, it helps make kind of an important point that will frame what we're going to talk about tonight. So I'm actually going to start with uh, verse 23, even though it's in the middle of a sentence because it it helps get us into the next section. Paul says, If you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea And for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Why do you do what you do? Why does the Apostle Paul do what he does? Is he just trying to not get fired? I don't think so. He's got a much bigger goal than that. And I think that the goal is so key in perseverance. Notice the two things he says he's been made a servant of. He says he's been made a servant of the gospel. That's why I wanted to read verse 23. And then later, he says that he's been made a servant of the church. And we're going to talk a good bit about the church tonight. um, Because I do think it's important to see God's heart for the church, which has then spilled over and grown Paul's heart for the church. And it's worth asking ourselves, 
about our own heart for the church, not just the gospel, but the church. And you know, I've lived in Nashville a long time. And there's one thing that I've known about Nashville that it's pretty noticeable. Maybe you've already picked up on this, though. This is a weird year. Next year, when you can go visit different churches, you will see this play out again, I'm sure. Nashville is just a church-hopping place. And you can kind of understand because you could go to a different good church almost every Sunday, four years at Belmont, and never go to the same church twice. It's extraordinary. There are a lot of really great churches. And I know that people that come to RUF are involved in all kinds of different churches, okay? But I do think we need to watch out for bringing kind of a consumer mindset to the way we think about the church. It's certainly in the air in this city, but I think it's actually part of the way the culture has squeezed all of us into being consumers, thinking about um, what can I get out of this thing. It's so easy, you see, to think of community as a commodity that's dispensed by the church. Let me say that again. It's so easy to think that community is a commodity dispensed by the church, and if you don't get it, you can move on and find it somewhere else. Actually, a few years ago, I was reading uh, a book where this guy mentioned talking with another professor. They were both professors at at a Christian college in the Midwest, and the one guy said to the other guy, you know, I've been going to this church yeah, but I'm kind of, I'm, I'm not really into it anymore. And he goes, but you know, well, the average church only has a shelf life of about three years anyway. And the guy writing the book was like, just like dumbfounded. Like, is that really the way we think? Like literally I've known people in Nashville and again, you might be this way. I don't mean this to shame you, but just to cause some reflection if this is you. But I've known people to say like, you know, once a month I'm going to go over to this church for the teaching, and then I'm going to go to this church for the worship, and then I really like like my friends that go to this church, so I'm going to go there with them. And it's, it's interesting. It's a consumer mindset. When you come to this passage, one thing that, that really should catch you, catch you here is that Paul does not view that. He feels a responsibility. He feels a calling. He feels an anguish for the church. And not just to be at church, but to build up the church. He talks about making everyone mature. What is it about Paul? What are the core beliefs that that drive him to think so differently than most of us do, which is to say, what are the core beliefs that we need to embrace? What is it we need to catch that will help us think differently than just consumers about the church? Well, the first one is he's been captured by the gospel, the good news. Here he calls it the mystery. The mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, in verse 23, this is one of the reasons I wanted to, to start with that, he, he basically says he's become a servant of the gospel because something happened to him, right? Of which I, Paul, became a minister. And if you remember what we talked about earlier in chapter 1, like the gospel came to him. This news came to him, it changed him, but it didn't just give him a new idea, it also called him and gave him responsibility. He talks about a stewardship. Do you know what a stewardship is? That means you've been given a gift and you feel this burden of responsibility for what you do with the gift. 
that's how he thinks about the gospel, right? And, and here's what I want us to understand. Paul feels implicated in God's goal for the world. And God's goal for the world is huge. And Paul says, I've been called into this to be a part of that. You remember uh, just, uh, I guess it was last week, I talked about you know, this fascinating phrase that Paul uses in chapter one, where he says that we've been transferred from the dominion of darkness into you know, the, the dominion of light. And, and I was saying how so many of us, if you ask me, what does it mean to be a Christian? Very few people say, well, I've been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of light. We just don't think about ourselves as being part of a kingdom. We tend to think of ourselves as having a get out of free, you know, get out of hell free card because I've accepted Jesus into my heart. Now, here's the, the problem with that. That's such a small little view of, of the gospel. The good news is way bigger than what happens to you when you die. It, it, so many of us, I think, have this kind of mindset because we've been, we've basically been taught a gospel that's a small little, just a smidgen, if you will, of the actual good news. Paul does not regard the gospel as merely a get out of hell free card. The gospel, he says, is the unveiling of the mystery that God wants to have an intimate relationship with his people. That God is not just for us, he comes into us. The language here is almost embarrassingly intimate. And Paul can't get over it. He keeps mentioning it. Later in the passage, he talks again about this mystery. What is the mystery? The mystery is that God doesn't want to just save people from hell. God wants to have this rich, intimate relationship with his people. He doesn't just call people to be his little worker bees. He wants to have rich, intimate relationship with them. And what I love about this idea is it helps us understand something that's so important for you to really get the Christian life and what it's all about, and it's this. In the gospel, God reveals his heart. God does not just give us a deal that we can accept and then just kind of get on with our lives knowing that we've got eternity taken care of. I wonder how many of you have basically heard the gospel as dealing with eternity, and that that's the focus of it, is what will happen when you die. That's really not the focus in the Bible. The Bible doesn't just talk about the gospel as being about what's going to happen when you die. It's about how then shall you live now. This is what Paul says. I've been given this stewardship, and I've been, I've been captured by God's goal, which is to to, to see this glorious vision come to fruition, that everyone would be presented mature, right? The gospel reveals God's heart to us, his heart for us, and his goal for his people, that he would live in us, us in him. And this is what's supposed to capture our hearts because it, when you begin to understand that what captures God's heart is the love that he wants to have, this relationship with his people, 
it begins to influence you. Isn't it always that way? When someone loves you, it begins to cause you to love the things they love. I was trying to think of a way to, to illustrate this, and I thought about, um, about this. Some of you guys know that I'm a big uh, National Predators fan. They're the hockey team, professional hockey team we have here in Nashville. And uh, you, it might surprise you to know I haven't always been a hockey fan. I did go one time in middle school, growing up in Baltimore. I went to one game, I remember. Uh, but I didn't go. You know, when I first moved to Nashville, before I met Wendy, before I got married, I actually won, like, the Fox Television Network's box at Bridgestone. And I got to bring, like, 10 of my friends to a hockey game. And it was fine. I was probably more excited about at the beginning of the third period when there was a knock on the door and I opened the door and this guy stood there with this platter of warm cookies and he said, the cookies are here. I was more excited about that, honestly, than I was the hockey game. But then something happened. Do you know what happened? Uh, our son Cooper, our oldest son, who some of you know, he's a junior in college now, um, he decided that he wanted to play hockey. And we were like, uh, Cooper, you don't know how to skate. And we don't have enough time to take you to learn how to ice skate. And he said, he got on the internet. He's always kind of been this kind of kid. And he realized that there was an inline hockey league in Nashville. So we're like, all right, we've got to play it against sports. We can get you some used skates. I can take you out to, you know, to like try out this little league. And then from there, we began to play um, the hockey game on the video game on the PS4. Maybe it was the Xbox 360 back then. And I was like, oh, I finally understand icing. And I finally understand offsides. And I finally see plays develop. And then I heard the coach, when he would be working with the kids, talk about how you need to do this. I, all of a sudden, I began to love and appreciate this game. And it was so great because Cooper didn't actually go back to school till like the very end of January. We got to watch a couple hockey games. What a joy, because we've come to love this thing. This is what Paul, I think, is trying to get us to, to, to capture here, to embrace, if you will. He's opening up not just his heart, but God's heart. And God's heart is what's captured Paul's heart. And it's why he lives and loves the way he does. What does he believe? He believes that this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, expresses the heart of God, that he wants this intimate relationship with his people. But he also believes that the church is Christ's body. Do you see that in verse 24? Now, I know we, we say that. Maybe you've been around Christian stuff enough that you've heard that. But think about what that actually means. You see, consumers never see themselves as part of the things they partake in. Thus, they feel no responsibility to anything more than themselves and their own needs. But Paul believes that the church is Christ's body. That's a huge thing. And it makes a huge difference in the way he thinks about the church. And it should make a huge difference in the way we think about the church. If the church is Christ's body, Christ the one who lived and died in our place. Doesn't that change the responsibility we have? Doesn't that change what we've been brought into? I, I, I think, you know, one of the things that's really helped me in doing RUF is that RUF 
is a, an arm of the church. Now, I know there are other different kinds of ministries that aren't necessarily connected to a particular church, but in RUF, we think that's really important. Um, not that you all need to be Presbyterian, not at all. I, I already said people go to all kinds of different churches. I know that. I celebrate that. Great. But it is important to us when I think about my calling and it's frustrating or it's difficult or it's going to make me uncomfortable. One of the things that keeps me going and even pressing into things that I don't really like to do is that the church is Christ's body. And I have been called, and if you're a Christian, you've been called to be about the work of building up the church, of making Christ's body beautiful. And it's so easy to take the posture of a consumer and criticize. Now hear me, I know some of you have probably suffered grievous wounds from churches. I don't want to make light of that. In fact, I'd love to sit down and hear those stories. I really would, because I think that's part of my role as a minister of the gospel, okay? But it's so easy to just get cynical and only want to be part of the church to the degree that we feel like we're getting something out of it. And what I want you to see is Paul can't do that because the church is Christ's body. And he also says this, verse 28, I've been commissioned by God to present the word in its fullness, so that he might present everyone mature. Man, that's a big, a big goal, isn't it? Now, here's what I want you to understand. There are, there are lots of churches and ministries that basically take this approach to discipleship and evangelism. The minimum amount of truth to the maximum amount of people. But that doesn't fit with what Paul's saying here, does it? He wants the fullness, everything that the Word has, he wants to get that into God's people so that they can be mature. It's a corollary, I think, of 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. That means there's no unimportant Scripture. That means there are no unimportant doctrines. The gospel, guys, is not a bare minimum minimal deal. It's not a bare minimum where as long as I've got enough of it to make sure I don't go to hell one day, I'm good. That's completely upside down uh, way to think about this thing. Don't try to live on less than the full word of God. You need all of the word of God. You need to understand and seek to study all of the word of God, right? You know, there are two diagnostic questions that we like to ask. And I would ask this about our RUF group. I would ask this about students involved in RUF. Here's the two questions. Are you growing in your love for the gospel? And are you growing in your love for his church? That's a good question. Are you growing in your love for God's gospel? And are you growing in your love for God's church? Never pit those two things against each other. Never pit actually evangelism and discipleship against one another. See, I think that's sometimes the idea that evangelism is just tearing the bare minimum so that people can make a decision, and then we try to bring them in and encourage them to go deeper, and that's discipleship. Actually, that distinction isn't in the Bible. We want to teach everyone as much truth as we can 
so that they would be mature. That's what Paul says he's laboring, toiling for. But then there's one last point that I want to make. Paul knows that suffering is not optional for those who want to serve God and his church. See, this is why it's important that we see the heart of Paul expressed here. He is not going to back down even when suffering comes because he's been captured by the heart God has for the church and Paul's been wrecked by it. He can't, he can't like just say, no, it's too hard, getting uncomfortable, not going there. He can't do that. And he soberly assesses what that means. Just as Christ was called to suffer and then enter into glory, so it is for all those who follow him. Christians should never be shocked by resistance and persecution, though it can take different forms in different times. And I particularly need to say this in our time in history, what we see, we've seen in the last few years, not all suffering, the Bible says, is for righteousness sake. Just because people get mad at you for being a Christian, some of it might because, be because you're a jerk. <laughs> and not just for righteousness sake. It's true. But a lot of times people kind of twist that and think, well, if I'm being persecuted, I must be on God's side. Not necessarily. Well, as Tertullian, one of the earliest Christians um, said, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. N.T. Wright, one of the great New Testament scholars of our day, says the vocation, the calling of the church is to suffer. And notice the way Paul says this here. It's remarkable, really. Paul says it's his privilege. Look at this, verse 24. This is an extraordinary verse. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, Paul is not saying that Jesus didn't do enough for our salvation, because if you back up to verse 22, it says that he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. So what Jesus did in his body, in the flesh, at the crucifixion, was enough to present Christians holy and blameless before God the Father, okay? That's not what Paul's talking about here. What Paul is talking about here is that God has ordained a certain amount of suffering for the church to come into the full consummation, the full beauty of holiness. That's a, a fascinating concept, that there is a certain amount of suffering God has appointed for the church to beautify the church. And Paul says, it's my privilege and my joy. Why? Because he longs to see the church beautiful. Do we long to see the church beautiful? Or do we just want to see the church comfortable? Paul longs to see the church beautiful. And therefore, he says, I rejoice if I can take some of that suffering that will contribute to maturing and beautifying the church my joy to take it, right? And, and Paul, you know, what's fascinating about Paul is, is he says this kind of stuff a lot. 
actually one of these verses that I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, if you've ever read his letter to the Philippians. In chapter 1, verse 29, Paul says this to the Philippians. This is while he's in jail, he writes this letter. For it has been granted to you. And that word granted is the same Greek word that's usually translated gifted. So here's God's gift to you. He's telling the Philippians, it has been granted or gifted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. That's kind of a different way of thinking about it, isn't it? It's been granted or gifted to you to believe. If you believe on Christ, remember who gets the credit. It's God's work. But not only that, it's been granted to you to suffer for him. And if you go all the way back in the book of Acts to when Paul was first called to serve Christ, first called is fascinating story in Acts chapter 9. So I don't know if you remember this or know this, but Paul, his name was Saul. And when the early Jesus movement was just getting going, he wasn't really fond of it. He thought that the Christians worshiping Jesus was blasphemy. And he was going around persecuting Christians. In one of his letters, he even says that he handed some of the Christians over to be put to death. Okay? He was very zealous in his persecution of Christians. Okay? Well, he's going down the road to a place called Damascus, and he's struck down by God. And he hears Jesus' voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That's important, you know, because what you need to understand is the sufferings of the church Jesus takes personally. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? This is when Jesus is resurrected. He still feels the persecution as his own persecution. Okay, That's important because when we're suffering, Christ feels it. Thus, we have a doorway into understanding what Jesus' love felt like for him. Because what it felt like for him to love his people was it felt like suffering and a torturous death on a cross. But listen, Paul gets struck down and then God speaks in a dream to this guy, Ananias. And he says, Ananias, I want you to go preach the gospel to Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias is like, Lord... Like, I know about this guy. He, like, kills Christians. Are you crazy? And God says, look, I'm working on him. Even now he is praying. And this is, this is what God says to Ananias. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. That means the non-Jews and their kings. And before the people of Israel. I will show him, this is God's words about Paul, I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for my name. That's Paul's call to ministry. It's kind of like Isaiah's call to ministry. When he sees God high and holy and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6 in the temple, and he's like, whoa, I'm a sinful man, and, and I, I, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And God says, you know... <laughs> you know, touches his mouth with the coal and I've cleansed you and calls him to go. And then the call that Isaiah gets is go to a people that won't listen. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you to a people that won't listen. 
But there's something about the vision of God holy and high and lifted up that it's not about success. It's about how could I not do what God has called me to do? Well, suffering, Paul understands intimately, is how the kingdom moves forward. Suffering is required for God's gospel and his kingdom to move forward. I wanted to mention this. I think I put this on an Instagram story. You see this book? It's a rather thick book, isn't it? Unfortunately, it's been rebound by a library. This is a book called The Acts and Monuments of John Fox, F-O-X-E. It's more commonly known as Fox's Book of Martyrs. Maybe some of you have seen it or even read it. But you've read it, I suspect, in an abridged one-volume edition. Do you know how many, ver- how many volumes Fox's Book of Martyrs actually is? It's eight volumes like this. And it's just stories about suffering. And it's not suffering from the whole history of the church. It's mostly about suffering of Protestants in Scotland and England in the 1500s, during the beginning of the English Reformation. And, and, and the stories were amazing. But here's what you need to understand. The, the people in the 16th century in England had a very different understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus than we do today. It was not a consumeristic uh, deal for them. And Fox's Book of Martyrs, next to the Bible, is the most read book in England in the 16th and 17th centuries. The most read book. Not only was it the most read book, besides the Bible, but at one point, a copy was placed in every single English parish church so that you could stay after church or go early and read these stories. Why? Because when you read a book like this, you have very different expectations about what a life of following Jesus might mean and the way the church has moved forward through suffering. I want to read you one of the stories. Can I read you one of the stories? This is from um, two guys. Both of them bishops, a guy named Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, October 16th, 1555, after spending 18 months in a cell in the Tower of London, they were both brought to Oxford and uh, tied to a stake in the courtyard there. The two men talked and prayed together, and then um, a, a blacksmith guy put this metal band around them and lashed them to the wood. Um, Nicholas Ridley was the first to talk to his friend Latimer. Latimer was about 20 years older than him. He was a pretty old man at this point. And, And Ridley says to him, be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. As the bundle of the sticks caught fire beneath them, Bishop Latimer, the older man, had his turn. Raising his voice so that Ridley could hear over the flames, he said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. That's such an English thing to say. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle that by God's grace in England, I trust will never go out. And it did. The English Reformation happened because of stories like this. 
not just things happening, but people reading and being encouraged. One of the other ones that is most unbelievable from this same book is a story about Thomas Hawks. Thomas Hawks basically got imprisoned because he refused to let a Roman Catholic priest baptize his new baby. And his neighbors turned him in after three weeks. He hadn't had the baby baptized. So they basically, you know, turned him in to the authorities. Um, he was imprisoned for a long time. Eventually, they um, let some of his friends and family visit him in prison. And some of the people who weren't in prison asked him, because at this point they knew he was going to be executed and burned at the stake. They asked him, Thomas, will it be possible for you to give some kind of indication that a man could actually suffer being burned at the stake without despairing? And Thomas Hawks promised, he said this, by the help of God, I will show that the most terrible torments can be endured in the glorious cause of Christ and his gospel, the comforts of which are able to lift the believing soul above all the injuries that man could ever inflict. And so what they decided to do was if the pains of burning were bearable, what Thomas Hawks said he would do is he would raise his hands above his head and clap three times. Soon after that, he was taken to the place of execution. The crowds were all around. He's fastened to the stake with a chain. Praise. The flames are kindled around him. Soon the blaze is roaring so loud that you can't see him and you can't hear him. And then all of a sudden, out of, out of the midst of this fireball, you see his hands and the clap three times. Do you understand? Like, why would somebody endure that? It's because the church is Christ's body. The stewardship of the gospel is so precious. So precious. And there is a fellowship with Christ in the midst of suffering that's hard to explain. But I'll give Charles Spurgeon, that great Baptist preacher, the last word to try and explain. Some of you may know he was known as the Prince of Preachers. At one point, his sermons in the 1800s in England, uh, he would preach on Sunday and by Monday morning, they would have like a little pamphlet. Over a million copies of his sermon would be distributed that week. The, the most popular preacher of his day, but he also was a tremendous sufferer. Tremendous sufferer. Not only physical pains, he had gout, but waves of depression and despair that threatened to overwhelm him. A friend of mine from seminary, Zach Eswine, wrote a book about the sorrows of Spurgeon that's really, really helpful. But this is uh, one of my favorite quotes from him. Spurgeon says this, I can truly say of everything I have ever tasted in this world of God's mercy, and my path has been remarkably strewn with divine loving kindness, I feel more grateful to God for the bodily pain I have suffered and for all the trials I have endured of various sorts than I do for anything else except the gift of his dear son. I am sure that I have derived more real benefit, permanent strength, growth in grace, and every precious thing from the furnace of affliction than I have ever derived from prosperity. 
That's strong. What suffering will God require of us for the gospel and for the kingdom to go forward? It's hard to know. I'll tell you this last story. I, I once worked at a church and um, had a very interesting meeting one time. I walked into a meeting only to discover that I'd been fired and rehired. And yet there was quite a bit of confusion about whether the firing counted or whether the rehiring counted. Uh, as you can imagine, it was a really difficult meeting. And um, after that meeting, which after about three hours concluded with people saying, okay, this was awful. We should never, at one point, one of the men at the meeting, one of the elders of the church that I worked at, a man that I loved, said, Kevin, here's the thing. We need major league players around here and you're AAA. And, and, and as, as those words came out of his mouth, everybody in the meeting was like, how could you say that to somebody? Like we're all serving God's church. Let me tell you, I'm not naive about the wounds that the church can inflict upon people, okay? And I told some friends of mine the next day what had happened. And do you know what their advice was? Run as fast as you can. Find another church. But you know what? I didn't do that. Because I love that church. And that meeting was so awful that there was nowhere else to go but up. And it actually led to months and months of talking about the things that I had longed for us to talk about. What did it mean for the church to actually do discipleship? What did it mean that the church could get to the point where we could just treat it like a business and say those sorts of things to one another. The only way that we were going to actually look at what we were thinking about the church in the face was if that kind of ugly meeting had happened. Now, I'm not going to say that it all got better, but that church is way better now. Way better now. I don't know what kind of suffering God may call you to endure, but I pray that you will endure it for the sake of Christ and his body. Because the church is what Jesus died for. The church is what stirs the heart of God. And our prayer should be that the things that stir the heart of God would stir our hearts. That's our prayer. And that's, that's what Paul's life is about. Now, I know that you can't just look at Paul and be like, oh, okay, cool, I'll just do that. No, we need to pray. And we need to cry out for God, not just that he would make us feel bad because we're not suffering. I'm not saying that, but that he would give us such a vision for the glory that he envisions and that he's committed to, that we would say, yes, sign me up. I want to be part of that. I want to see the church beautiful. I want to see the church loving, caring for people, speaking out about injustice. And I'm not going to settle for less, even if it calls me to suffer. That's what the kingdom of God is about. Let's pray.